1940, during the early days of World War II, Winston Churchill stood in the House of Commons and he went on to deliver one of the world's most memorable speeches. And in this speech, Winston Churchill said, We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We will fight on the seas and the oceans. We will fight with a growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island. Whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Words like these and the speeches that he gave throughout the war inspired the citizens of Great Britain to continue to fight and to not give up. Even in many of his speeches, and even in this speech, he even realized the possibility of, of losing. But even in failure, he said, we are going to not ever give up. I think oftentimes as Christians, we need to be reminded that we too must never give up the fight of faith. In fact, many of your Bibles, whenever you read the passages that we read today, it's like, where's my Bible? Here it is. Oh, man. Never trust a preacher who doesn't have a Bible in the pulpit. Good night. That's a close one. (laughs) In our passage, many of your Bibles uh, in our passage today might even begin with the words, fight the good fight. We need to be reminded of the battle that we are ensuing upon. We as Christians have a hard and an incredible fight ahead of us in this life. We are to fight our own desires and the desires of the flesh that lead us into sin. We are to stand firm against the godlessness that is so prevalent in our culture. We are to keep a true faith. We are to call to disciple our families. We are called to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. We are called to protect and to build up the church, the body of Christ around us. And we are called to do these things in this text until Christ returns or until we breathe our final breath. So how do we go about this fight? And I believe our text clearly lays out for us how we are to go about that fight. And the first thing he calls us to do in that fight might be surprising. The first thing he calls us to do in this fight is to flee. And you might think, well, that's kind of anticlimactic. It's like, all right, let's go fight. And the way that you fight is by running away, (laughs) right? It goes against everything we think about. But that speech that inspired Great Britain by Winston Churchill, where he said, we are going to fight and we are never going to surrender. One of the things that we have to remember is that he gave that speech right after what they call the miracle of Dunkirk, where 340,000 British troops were stranded on the beaches of the continent of Europe with nothing but destruction coming their way. And what did they have to do? They had to retreat. And not like a retreat in an organized fashion. It was like, all right, we've got 340,000 people on these beaches and no way to get them off. Let's send in the fishing boats. And that's how they escaped the coming army. But that retreat was a strategy for victory. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, one of the ways that we fight the good fight of the faith is by fleeing. 
We flee. We become safe from danger. How? By avoiding danger. We avoid sin. We avoid temptation. In the case of verse 11, he says, But you, man of God, flee from these things. Whenever you read in the text these things, you have to say, which things? The things he just finished talking about earlier in the chapter. We are to flee the pointless conversation over false doctrine. We have to flee false teachers. Why? Because oftentimes false teaching comes in a very attractive package. That oftentimes false teaching involves a lot of cunning thought that went into the arguments. And regarding false teaching, Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 verse 15 calls false teachers wolves in sheep's clothing. They are convincing, they are crafty in their arguments. And Paul said if we want to fight the good fight of faith, we have nothing to do with false teachers or their false doctrine. In many cases, in many cases, I'd even say we don't engage them. Because whenever you engage a false teacher, I think two things happen. One thing, they thrive on that engagement. They thrive on that dispute. They thrive on that argument. Their, infi- their entire argument's built upon it. And they will draw you into the mud with themselves. I think the other reason why we don't give false teachers the time of day is because whenever we engage false teachers, what we're doing is we're giving them an audience. If we do not engage them, if we do not discuss that doctrine with them, they have no one to speak to it about. So don't give them a microphone, don't give them a platform, don't give them an audience. The way that we really attack false doctrine is by knowing true doctrine. The way that we attack false doctrine is by knowing what we believe and why we believe it. I think what scripture calls us to do time and time again is to commit ourselves to the truth. Are you in the word of God? Are you reading other books on on good doctrine, on true doctrine? And guys, we don't do this in isolation. Because if you're doing this in isolation, how do you know if what you're reading is true? Like that is why God has given us the church. That we can read together, that we can grow together, that we can encourage one another in the truth. We listen to it, we read it, we preach it to ourselves, we treasure it. We hide it in our hearts so that we might not sin against God. So he calls us to flee from false teaching. My question is this. Do you know the truth so well that you can spot the counterfeit? Do you know the gospel, the biblical truth so well that whenever false teaching comes to you, it's like you open the the milk and you're like, ooh, that's sour. Like you can spot it. Let's commit ourselves to knowing what is true so that whenever falsehoods come to us, we can spot it. And just like that sour milk, man, we're not going to drink it. We get rid of it. 
The next thing he calls us to flee from in this text is what Neil preached on last week. He preached on false teaching, but he also preached on contentment. If you, met, met, if you missed last week's sermon, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's quite powerful. I appreciate Neil and his words. But he also calls us to flee from discontentment. Listen to what he says. We'll go back and read what he says. He says in verse 6, But godliness with contentment is of great gain. We brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. And if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. What he is calling us to is to a life of contentment. So what he is calling us to flee from is discontentment. In this text, in these words, what he's really talking about is the idea of of material gain. He's talking about the idea of, of materialism. And so what we are to flee from is the idea of materialism. We're going to talk about this more next week. Next week he talks about instructions to those who are wealthy, instructions to those who are are rich. So I don't want to talk about too much here. But really when we think about materialism, what I want you to think about is a leech. I don't know where you swam growing up. I, I grew up in the country, so we didn't have pools um, we had stock tanks. And if, and if, and if you're not from Texas, a stock, a stock tank is a pond. You know, it's a little, little puddle of water on the ground where the cows and the sheep and the goats go drink. And so my brothers and I, that's what we swam in. And so we would, we would swim in that dark, murky water. We would throw mud at each other. We would throw moss balls at each other. And every now and again, we would get up out of the water to walk back to the house and one of us would be like, hey, dude, you've got a leech. Because that's where they live. And the thing about leeches is you never know. Anyone else get this growing up or is this just me? It's like, all right, it's not just me. All right, good. All right. <laughs> but you never know when a leech bites you. Do you know why? It, it, it's, part, it's part of their strategy. It's how they're made. That it, it, if a leech bites you and you knew it, what would you do? Hey, you take it off. But when the leech bites you, it, it doesn't hurt you. It doesn't sting you. Don't, you don't even know you've been bit by it. But slowly, as that leech latches onto its host, it just feeds off of its blood. And it feeds off of its strength, and it becomes stronger and stronger. Materialism is like that. Oftentimes we fall into materialism and the pursuit of wealth and the pursuit of of things and we don't even realize we've been bit by this leech. But it latches on and it feeds off of us and it grows. You know what the difference between a leech and materialism is? When a leech is full, it lets go. But with materialism... It continues to feed. It continues to to just suck the life out of a host. You say, well, how do I know if I've been bitten by this leech of materialism? How do I know if I've fallen into the trap? Guys, I just want to say probably all of us are in this trap. We live in a world and a society that always promises more, that always promises new, that always promises better. You probably have the list 
of what you're going to get next and the order of what you're going to get and what you're going to improve and what it just goes on and on. And scripture warns us that oftentimes when we fall into that tendency, our mind is consumed with the things of this earth and we forget about the things of heaven. You've probably heard it said, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Guys, I don't think we've got that problem. I think we're so earthly minded that we're no heavenly good. Look at what the apostle says. He says, but godliness with contentment is of great gain. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out. Like the words of Job, I came naked into this world and naked I'm going to go out. We can't take it with us. But that is what we focus our lives on is what we can collect. And then he says this in verse 8. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. I mean, is that not shocking? Like, what should we be content with? Do you have the necessities for life, food, clothing, shelter? It's like, if you've got that, if you've got the necessities of life, we can be content with that. Now, does that sound crazy? I mean, to me, it kind of sounds crazy. Like, could this be? But the word of God is true. It's trustworthy. I think what we need to do is we need to look at our own heart. We need to look at our own life and how we're living and what we're living for and do an assessment of saying, man, do I need to flee from materialism and discontentment? What you can do is you can ask yourself some questions. Ask yourself the question, what is it that I want? And like when I was a kid, we, we made like a Christmas list like once a year. But I feel like as an adult, we just keep that running Christmas list for ourselves going. What do I want? And then think, how much of what I want is driving me in my life? That my life is really being driven and pushed by my earthly desires. And ask me, answer this, like, if you don't get it, how much disappointment will be there? Make a list of what you have and what would happen if you lost some of those things. Would, would, would it crush you? Do you have this fear of losing things? Ask yourself the question, are you generous with what you have? Do you hold your possessions and your wealth in an open hand, ready and willing to help other people who are in need? When Paul wrote the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians, he said the very reason you have wealth in this moment in time is so that you can help other people in need. He said one day you're going to find yourself in need. And then that's going to be an opportunity for the other body members of Christ to say, you know what? I now have something in need. I can help you out. 
So there's this idea that the reason God has blessed us materially is not so we can build bigger barns and bigger kingdoms for ourselves, but the reason God has blessed us financially is so that we can turn around and help other brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need. Are we living our lives in such a way where it's like, man, I would love to help somebody else in need, but I've got too many subscriptions and I've got... I've got too much debt. And I've got too many things I want to get instead. Paul is saying what we need to do is flee. Flee discontentment. Flee materialism. And as we read the rest of the New Testament, he tells us to flee all sorts of things. False teachers, materialism. We are called to, to flee sexual immorality. That fleeing is, is how we fight for the kingdom of God. We flee sin and temptation. And we can ask the question, why do we flee? One of the verses I love to go to is found in 1 Peter 5, 8, where the apostle Peter says, Be sober-minded and alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. I mean, if we've learned anything from National Geographic, it's, it's the truth that, man, we don't mess with lions. That lions are, are ferocious. That lions are dangerous. But what do we try to do with a lion of sin and temptation? Well, we say, well, yeah, I can tame it. I can tame it. I can have control over my sin. In fact, my sin, I can stop it whenever I want to. We're like an addict saying that we can stop anytime we want to, but keep going back to our addiction. It makes me think of, of Siegfried and Roy. Do y'all remember this, this show, Siegfried and Roy? If you do, you're probably like me. All my sermon illustrations are, are, are getting older with me. Uh, Siegfried and Roy, they used to have this show out in Las Vegas and their show is all about taming these lions and working with these lions on stage. They did thousands of shows, but this one particular day, Roy was up on stage with this, with this white tiger, and he just loses control just once. And that tiger that he'd been training and feeding and caring for took him down. On stage in front of an audience, did a kill bite, didn't kill him, but they said this was a tiger's intention grabbed him by the neck and drug him off the stage. Whenever we approach our sin saying, I've got control over it, I can handle it, we're trying to tame a lion. And guys, none of us are strong enough. None of us are capable enough to do it. We try to tame the lion. We might even try to, to like flirt with the lion and say, you know what, I, I'll, just, I'll just get as close as I can and remain safe. Why do we do that? In regards to sin, oftentimes what we do is we set up these boundaries. And it's like, well, I want to go this far, but no further. We do this in, in our physical relationships while we're dating oftentimes. Or we'll, we'll do this with, with, with alcohol and say, like, you know what, I'm go, I, I might get buzzed, but I'm not going to get drunk. And we just do as far as we can and get as far as close as we can and say, I'm not going to go across that line. Why is it that we think the line is so attractive? 
If we think that the line separating us from sin is, is so good, what are we saying? We're saying that the sin is good. Guys, we, we can't flirt with the line. We can't flirt with the edge of that cliff. You know how you don't fall off a cliff? You stay away from the edge. If you stay away from the edge, you're not going to fall off the cliff. should have learned that when I was mountain biking. I didn't. We flirt with that lion. When it comes to our sin, we need to flee from our sin the way that Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. Whenever she tried to seduce him, he ran from her so quickly with so much force that she reached out and grabbed a hold of his cloak and it was like a fight on a schoolyard. Where he's like, you might got my jacket, but I can, I can like get out of my jacket. And he still ran away. We need to run and flee from that which tempts us. We need to run and flee from the sin that so easily entangles us. One of our tactics in fighting the good fight of the faith is, from, is by fleeing sin. But then we also fight. Look at verse 11 again. It says, but you, O man of God... Flee from these things. But it's not just about fleeing. But he says also pursue. Pursue things like righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. As a people, we are not only known as for the things that we are against, the sinful things of this world, but we are also known for the things that we are for. What are we for and how do we fight for them? We are for righteousness and faith. As a people of God, we are for righteousness and faith and we realize that the righteousness that we have is not our own. We are to fight the good fight of faith by trusting in the righteousness of Jesus. That's the righteousness we have. We are to fight the good fight by clinging and holding on to faith. Like a man drowning in the ocean, what is he holding on to? He's holding on to that life preserver. Man, we hold on to the faith that we have in Jesus because we realize it's the only thing that can save us. So we pursue and we fight the good fight by holding on to faith, by holding on to righteousness. Because this is something that we have to remind ourselves time and time again. What sin does in our lives is it tells us all sorts of lies about life. Sin tells us all sorts of lies about what we are owed and about what we deserve and about what we should have. But as the people of God, the way that we fight the good fight of faith is by holding on to the righteousness of Christ and holding on to the faith that he has given us. Are you pursuing that knowledge? Are you pursuing that faith? And not only are you pursuing it, but then are you beginning to apply it? Not only do we fight the good fight with righteousness and faith, he also calls us in verse 11 to pursue godliness and love. We don't wake up into the morning and fall into godliness. We don't walk down the street and bump into love and be like, great, now I've got love. 
that godliness and love are things that we have to work towards. That we begin to apply the words and the commands of Scripture. 1 John chapter 5 says that the commands of God are not burdensome. And so we find these commands and we begin to walk in them. The pursuit of godliness means that we have to be on the pursuit of rooting sin out in our lives. How is that work going in your life right now? Can you pinpoint and say, man, this is the sin I'm working on in this moment, that I am searching the scriptures to to rid it and to void it in my life? To, To... get this godliness, to fight for it, to take it, to pursue it. One of the things that we have to realize is that, once again, this is a community effort. The pursuit of godliness and holiness is not something that you can do on your own. So what does that mean for us as a body? It means that we have to be a body. We have to be a people who are willing to walk up to confrontation. We have to be able to look at a brother or sister in Christ and say, I see this in you. Why don't you tell me more about it? To call out sin that we see. And I I just want to say that this this is true. This is true in the church. Guys, if you're married, this has got to be true in your marriage. Do you have the ability in your marriage to confront one another without each of you like building walls of, of self-protection. I'd encourage you that if your spouse comes to you or your brother or sister in Christ comes to you and they confront you on a sin, man, why don't you receive that in love? Why don't you receive that and that this person is trying to help me look more like Jesus. If you're not willing to receive correction, man, are you really fighting the good fight of faith? We've got to be able to correct one another. We've got to be able to to rebuke one another. We've got to be able not only to do those things, but to encourage one another with the truth to bear with one another in patience, to keep no record of wrongs. We walk with one another intentionally with godliness and love. And then he calls us also to endurance and gentleness. Pursue endurance, pursue gentleness. One of the beautiful things about the faith is that our strength is not our own. And we walk this faith journey with the power that Christ gives us. And as we face trials in this life, and as we face struggles and sorrows in this life, one of the good things is, is that God looks at those trials and those sufferings, and he says... I can use those for my kingdom. 
And whenever we endure that trial with faith in God, you know what it does? It, it sends our roots down deeper. And it makes, us, it makes us stronger. So when the next storm and the next trial comes along, we'll have deeper roots to keep us standing. That's how we endure. We endure and get that ability to endure by continuing to fight the good fight of faith and not giving up. With each drop of rain, Noah had a greater understanding that God's commandment to build and to fill the ark was not burdensome. It was a good thing that God has called us to hard things, but those hard things are good things, and we believe them and walk in them, we become stronger. Guys, right now, if you are like living your life right now and you're like, nah, things are pretty good, not that bad, that's probably a minority of us in here. But if that is you by chance right now, what I'd encourage you to do is like in this point of reprieve in your life, begin to develop a doctrine of suffering. Begin to develop a doctrine of trial so that when those trials do come, when the suffering does come, you know how to process them and it will give you deeper roots to stand the test of time. We are called to fight the good fight of faith. And when we fight the good fight of faith, what we come is not like battle-hardened and angry and cold. But when we fight the good fight of faith, he tells us that we also pursue gentleness. That as we live out this life, we become more and more gentle in Christ. in a context where strength is valued, which, man, that's great. We've got to value strength. But in a context where also anger is just a, it's like your morning cup of coffee. As Christians, we have got to realize that to fight the good fight of faith means we don't give in to our anger, but we learn to be gentle, that we have a strength, but it is a strength that is controlled. That's the good fight of faith. And Christ has called us to live this life in Christ until Christ comes again. And he gives us our reward, our eternal reward with Christ in heaven. We do this at his calling. So let us fight this good fight of faith together. Let's stand and pray.